Salvation Now podcast, where you'll discover and be equipped with keys from the Word of God that will pave the way to God's unlimited blessing in your life. Now, here's your host, Evangelist T.J. Malkanji. The believer's authority, the authority of the believer, the the thought that spawned this entire broadcast was, could it be that there is a level of authority, a level of dominion, a spiritual endowment that we've received that many believers are not operating in? I want to start off by reading in Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse 11. We're going to read, we're going to read the whole parable of the, of the lost son, the prodigal son, and I There's something in here that not many people touch on, but it's very important for what I'm discussing today. And I want to start off by reading this story. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. This is what the Bible says. Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And so he divided them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Pause right there. Anytime you engage in a lifestyle of sin, it will lead you to total and utter depravity. It will lead to utter depravity. The Bible says he had a season of pleasure where he was spending all that he had with lavish living. Just everything that made him happy, he bought. Everything that made him happy, he did. And the scripture says where where that left him hanging. It left him hanging in a place of extreme want, of depravity. And then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and sold himself essentially as a slave and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. You see what sin does? It not only deprives deprives people of God's best, but it leaves him in a place of slavery. Paul said you are no longer slaves to sin. So if you're a Christian, quit saying I keep sinning every day. Quit saying I don't know how to stop sinning. You're no longer a slave of sin. But when you are engaged in a life of sin, the Bible says not only are you in slavery to that sin, but the Bible says that he was eating pig's food. You're far below the level that God wants you to walk in. Far below the dignity that God has bestowed on you. Sin strips of dignity. Sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go. It'll keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay. And it will cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. So cut sin out of your life. Because if you don't do that, and I'm going to get into it a little more afterwards, but if you don't do that, if you don't take, if you don't, um, take dominion over the area of sinful living, and walk in holiness, everything else, all this authority that I'm about to get in today, into today is not going to work for you. It's not going to work for you. You have to walk, be holy even as I am holy, says the Lord. For without holiness, no man will see the Lord. Not only will you not see him with your physical eyes, but you'll not see him operate in your life. You'll not see any blessing of his in your life. Sin robs of blessing. Sin robs of dignity. Sin robs of, of, um, of authority. Sin will rob you of boldness. Sin will rob you of God's best. It is the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So you have to make it a point today. I'm not going to confess what most preachers want me to confess. I sin every day. I don't know how to stop sinning. How many of you know nobody's perfect? No, I'm going to confess what the Bible says about me. I, I don't have to sin. The old body of sin has been done away with. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm a slave to Christ, a slave to righteousness, and I'm going to live my life in a manner well-pleasing unto the Lord. If Job can live in a manner well-pleasing unto the Lord when he had far less of a better, far less of a covenant that we have, then how much more should I be able to live in a manner pleasing the Lord, bearing fruit in every season, walking in holiness on the earth under this better covenant? I want you to comment that in the comment section. Say, I will live holy. I will live holy. That's right, because without holiness, no man will fear the Lord. And then in Proverbs, it says, it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. So you can't even walk in divine wisdom You can't even have access to revelation from God's word 
to understand what I'm about to talk to you about today without the fear of the Lord in place. The fear of the Lord. I, lo- I mean, I stumbled on this scripture again the other day, and it just, it, it just bred life in me. In Proverbs, I think it's 19 verse 13. I could be off. But the Bible says that the fear of the Lord leads to life. And that's not just talking about living, because there's a lot of people who don't fear the Lord, but are still living. They have life in their body. Their heart hasn't stopped functioning. That life is talking about the life of God, a life of blessing, a life of riches, a life of honor, a life of joy and peace. The fear of the Lord leads to that life. Then get this. The writer of Proverbs says, he that has the fear of the Lord will abound in satisfaction. So not only are you going to be alive and living, you're going to have a satisfactory life. You're going to have a satisfying life. You're going to have a life that Jesus said is abundant life. He, the fear of the Lord, leads to life. He that has it will abide in satisfaction in an abundant life. And then get this, the last part of that verse says, he will not be visited with evil. When you fear the Lord, the devil can come a-knocking, But he doesn't have to enter into your home. He has no ability. He has no authority to ever even come into your home. You will not be visited with evil. It doesn't mean that evil won't stalk. It doesn't mean that evil won't try to surround. It just won't have the ability to impede on you, to get in. He won't have, you know, Paul says, don't give the devil a foothold. There won't be any cracks in the armor where the enemy can sneak his ugly butt in. Totally, totally, uh... Evil proof, totally evil proof, proof, totally protected. The shield of faith, the Bible says, that extinguishes every fiery dart of the evil one. So when you walk in holiness, you proof yourself against evil. When you walk in holiness, you have shut any kink in the army, has been closed up. And that shield of faith, which is an encompassing shield, it guards, the, the Bible says, the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Not only the things that you can see, the attacks that you've seen that the Lord's delivered you from, but even the attacks you never even saw coming. Even the things that you're going to have to wait till heaven to understand how God protected you from that and that. The accidents, you should have died. Drunk di- drivers that were on the road, but somehow you got delayed for 15 minutes. And if you had not had that delay, you would have come head-on collision. God is your rear guard. The attacks you see, God defends you from. And even the attacks you don't see, the Lord is your rear guard. The Lord is the standard that rises up against the enemy that rushes in like a flood. So listen to this before I get on that tangent. I've been preaching for like the last six weeks, so my my preaching mood is different than my broadcast mood, so I'm trying to stick on what we've got planned for today. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? And here I am perishing with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your servant. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he arose and came to his father. And while he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion. So this is what repentance is. Repentance is, I feel bad, but I'm still going to live in this country called sin. Repentance is, he reasoned within himself and said, I will return. I will go back. I'm turning around. He arose and came to his father. And when his father saw him, notice how his father wasn't standing there with a ruler in his hand, ready to beat him over the head. The Bible says he saw him from afar, a great way off, which means the father was looking for him. God's always looking looking for people to repent. The Bible says he leaves the 99 and goes after the one Goes after the one until he repents. And then when he does, like the sheep, he puts him on his shoulders and rejoices for this was lost, but now he's found. Listen to this. He saw him and ran. That's the only place in the entire Bible where, the, where God is pictured as running. Where God is said to run. There's no other place in the entire Bible where God is pictured as running or God even says, I'm going to run to you. Except for here, which shows his level of compassion and his level of mercy. He wasn't waiting there. You know, you you make the way here. I ain't getting out of this place. Not after what you've done. No, he ran to meet him and wrapped his arms around him, fell on his neck and kissed him. And then notice he didn't say, you wretched thing. You're such a dirty thing. Don't don't even come near me. You, You stay in quarantine for the next 40 days. Don't come. No, the Bible says he even kissed him. He went out of his way to show a level of love that's very, that's reserved only for members of the family. You don't kiss your servants. You don't kiss your, I don't go around kissing my employees. I don't go around kissing people I don't know on the streets, strangers. I kiss my my wife. I kiss my kids. 
That's how it is. When the Bible says he ran and kissed him, he was saying, I've received you as a son. I didn't receive you as a servant. I'm not receiving you as a wretched, depraved thing. I'm receiving you as my own child, just as you were before you left. That's what redemption is. Redemption is the restoration of that which was lost in Adam. Redemption is the restoration of that which was lost in Adam. Adam is called the son of God. You can read in Luke's genealogy. Adam, the son of God. Adam was a son of God. Adam was a child of God in the Garden of Eden. Adam bore in himself the image of God. When Adam sinned, that image, that God-likeness, that Position of sonship was lost and we became slaves to sin. Romans 5 says that. But when Christ came and died for us and shed his holy blood for us, we had our sonship reinstituted. Read Romans 8. It says now we are no longer as debtors to the flesh, meaning we're no longer sold under sin, under slavery to the, to the sinful lusts of the flesh, but we have put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit, and the Spirit of God now dwells in us, testifying with our spirits that we are children of God. We're children of God. So he received them as a child. And if a child of God, Romans 8 says, you are a joint heir with Christ Jesus. What does a joint heir mean? It means everything Jesus inherited because of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension because of his obedience to the point of death, even the death of the cross, everything that Jesus inherited has now been transferred over to us. You can read that in Revelation chapter 5 and 12. The, the writer of Revelation, John, says that he heard the multitude singing a new song in heaven, singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive for us, to receive for us, Jesus didn't need dominion before he went to the cross. He already had dominion. Jesus was already the dominating one. Jesus didn't need honor or glory. He already was dwelling in glory in heaven. So the Bible says that he is worthy to receive for who? For us. Honor, dominion, wisdom, and glory forever and ever. So those, And there's actually seven things listed in that, in, that, in that specific scripture. But those things were not for Jesus. He already had those things. Those things are for the church to be conferred on the church that the, the blood of Jesus was shed so that we can have honor, so that we can walk in dominion, so that we can walk in authority, so that we can, can walk in his glory, in God's glory, not take credit for his glory, but part, the Bible says we are partakers of his glory. The Bible says that we are partakers of his divine nature. Scripture says... That we are joint heirs with Christ. So I didn't inherit a different inheritance from Christ. I inherited the same inheritance that Christ inherited because of his obedience to the cross. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, listen to this. And this is when I want to get it today. Bring out the best robe. Put it on him. And put a ring on his hand. And sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Stop there. There's three things that the prodigal son received the moment he repented. And came back into the family. Came back into the fold of the family. You know, the Bible says that we are now members of the household of faith. Ephesians chapter 2 says we are no longer strangers or foreigners. We are now members of the household of God and citizens with the saints. So when we talk about the believer's authority, I'm not talking about something you have to pray to receive. I'm not talking about something you got to fast and believe God to have. I'm talking about something that the moment, it's not a special gift that's been imparted to you through special prayer, times of fasting and consecration. This authority is given to you as an inherent right of the child of God due to your elevation with Christ through redemption. So this isn't something that we're trying to attain to. It's not something that you have to believe God for, that you have to hit a certain level of spirituality before you start to partake of what I'm about to talk to you about today. No, remember, the prodigal son, the moment he returned, the father bestowed on him three things. Number one, 
He gave him, so the moment you're born again, you get these three things. Number one, he gave him a fatted calf, representing the blessing of God. You don't have to work up to the blessing. The Bible says in Ephesians 1, 3, thanks be unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, has blessed us, not is going to, not is going to reward a select few, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. So that fatted calf represents the blessing of God being imparted to the believer. Within the blessing of God is provision for your health, provision for your mind, provision for your finances, your material needs and desires. Within the blessing of God, you know, Proverbs 10.22 is a perfect uh, description and a, a very short description of what the blessing means. The blessing of the Lord maketh a man rich and adds no sorrow to it. So the blessing of God is not just material blessing, although it has to do with material blessing. It has, because, you know, if it was all just material blessing, then we can say, you know, all these Hollywood stars are blessed. But they're not, because they got sorrow tied to it. They don't have sorrowless blessings, sorrowless riches. They, they have a hard time. You talk to some of them. A lot of them are battling suicide. A lot of them are battling all kinds of demons. They're messed up. They, they got anxiety, they got all kinds of panic attacks, they, they've got sickness in their body, whatever it is. So the blessing of the Lord is not just material riches, it's the peace and joy of the Holy Ghost that comes beside it too, so that you have no sorrow with it. It's a sorrowless blessing. It's a sorrowless, sorrow-free riches, sorrow-free freedom, sorrow-free life. Number one, he got, he got the fatted calf, which represents that blessing. Number two, the father gave him the best robe, the Bible says. This has to do with our being clothed with Christ. Our clothing, the Bible says we have, we have put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The robes of righteousness. This has to do with your position before God as being fully and entirely righteous. The moment you get saved, you are 100% righteous. There's not one Christian that's more righteous than another Christian. It doesn't matter if you won 5 million souls to the Lord last year or if you lost five souls to the Lord last year. Both of you are equally righteous. The moment you came to Christ and, and, uh, and you became a born-again believer, God imputed to you, the Bible uses the word impute, which means he handed it over to you. He, he gave it into your possession. You now own this. He imputed to you his righteousness. So it's not my righteousness it's not my ability to live right and all that. It's Jesus' righteousness. His, his, what, his perfection, his holiness. He imputed that to me. And the good thing is, is the fruit of that is a holy lifestyle. So a lot of people, they say, well, no, I'm righteous because he is righteous. It doesn't matter what I do. No, when you truly have his righteousness imputed into you, the fruit of it is a holy lifestyle. There's a longing for righteousness. There is a longing for um for righteous action. There's a longing for righteous, a righteous lifestyle, righteous living. There is a resistance against sin. There's a turning away from sin. So anyone that teaches to you, I'm righteous, and doesn't matter what I do, you know, I just confess I'm righteous at the end of the day, that's a twisted teaching. There's a little bit of truth in it, but it gets spoiled because of the amount of, of demonic doctrine you know, Jesus said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just a little bit of demonic twisting can screw up an entirely good doctrine. And so when I preach on righteousness, yes, I'm righteous not because of my action. I'm not righteous because of what I've done. I'm not righteous because of who I am. I'm righteous because of who he is and what he's done. But because I understand that, and because that fruit, the Bible calls it the fruit of righteousness, because I'm a, a, that fruit of righteousness is in me, or rather that root of righteousness is in me, it produces the fruit of righteousness. So when you have the root of righteousness in you, it produces the fruit of righteousness in your life. So he gave him his righteousness. He clothed him with Christ. The stains of your past, your unholy living, all the mistakes, all the things you did, all the, if you had abortions in your past, if you committed adultery in your past, if you slept around, if you got drunk, if you were a liar, if you were uh, in witchcraft, in the occult, all of that under the blood, your sins and lawless deeds, he remembers no more. When God looks on you, he sees Jesus Christ. 
He sees Christ in his perfection. He sees Christ in his holiness. He sees the purity. That's why Isaiah 1 says, though your sins were as red as crimson, I'll make them as white as snow. So quit saying, you know, after what I've done. It doesn't matter what you've done. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things passed away. Everything becomes new. Because God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we can be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I am as righteous as Jesus is because I've been joined together with him and I've become one spirit with him. So God gave him that. And then the third thing that the father gave the prodigal son when he returned, and this is what we're going to zone in on today, is he gave him a golden ring, which represented the authority of the home. Whoever carried that golden ring had the power of the father, the resources of the father, the authority of the father backing every command that that person issued out. So when we get born again, God blesses us, Ephesians 1, 3. God gives us his righteousness, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. We are justified. And then he gave us his key of dominion. He gave us his ring of authority. So that when we issue out a command in the name of Jesus, or by the word of God, or whatever, we're going to get into that. When we issue out a command, the power of God, the authority of heaven, the resources of heaven back that command given to the one who's been born again and received this signet ring of authority. And it's enforced on the earth. So the entirety of the resources and the power of the family is delegated to whosoever possesses the ring of authority. Jesus gave us the ring of authority of heaven. So that all the power and all the resources of heaven are now delegated to us. You know, this is where a lot of believers get messed up on. Because they're believing God to do certain things that God has already given you authority to take care of. And so we spend our life praying for God to do things that he's already said, I've given you the sword of the spirit to take care of that yourself. Not everything. We're not to pray for everything. Now, in all things, the Bible says, by prayer and supplication, make a request known to God. That's referring to the prayer of request. You need a job. You need a, a situation dealt out with. Uh, you need wisdom on something. Yes, pray about those things. But the Bible actually never talks. So when we talk about authority, we're not talking about having authority used towards God. We don't have authority over God. We're not talking even about authority used towards our fellow man. I don't have authority over my fellow man. We do, however, have authority over the devil. And so when we're talking about authority today and utilizing and operating in our God-given authority, we're speaking about our dominion being enforced over the unseen forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Remember, and I'm going to read it actually, Ephesians chapter 6 tells us who our battle is with. Our battle is not with flesh and blood. Our battle, verse 12, is not against flesh and blood, but it is against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness in this age. So a lot of people teach, you know, we're going to have authority in the millennial reign of Christ. Yes, we, we will have a level of authority in the millennial reign of Christ. But Paul said that this authority that we're talking about, the power to stand against the wiles of the devil, is not for the millennial reign of Christ. It says here... It is for the rulers of darkness of this age. It's for this age. It's for now. It's for here. How many of you know when we get to heaven, we'll finally have victory over the devil? No. Colossians 2, 14 and 15. Jesus, the Bible says, disarmed principalities. He humiliated powers in heavenly places, making a public show, a humiliation of hell, openly having triumphed over the devil at the cross. Now, we didn't see this happen with our physical eyes, but I want you to imagine this. When Jesus rose again from the dead and he led captivity captive, the Bible says, and the Bible says he, he stripped the devil of the keys of authority that he formerly did have on the earth because Adam, let, he, he ceded those keys over to, to Satan. Adam legally, he didn't have the moral right to do it, but he had the legal right to hand the keys of authority on planet earth over to Satan, and he did that. When Jesus died, went down to the lowest, he took those keys back. He ascended, and get this, 
there was a parade. We didn't see it, but I want you to imagine this with me because this actually happened. We didn't see it with our physical eyes because the spiritual realm is hidden. But what happened at that moment was there was a parade. All of heaven, hell, and the, the, the forces in heavenly places gathered to see this parade. And it was literally the devil grabbing, uh, it was Jesus rather, grabbing the devil by his legs and leading him and publicly humiliating him before all the angels, all the demons, all the fallen angels, all the heavenly creatures. Jesus grabbed the devil's legs and led him in this parade of victory. Dragged him through the streets and showed forth his absolute victory and triumph over the devil. So that we're not waiting for that anymore. It's an event that already transpired. That's why Paul says, we have this dominion now over the spiritual horses, spiritual rulers of darkness in this age. Not waiting to get dominion. I have dominion. I want you to write that in the comment section. Say, I have authority. I have authority. I'm not waiting to get authority. I already possess it. Therefore, take ye up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day. So you know what that tells you? Paul says you don't have to fall in the evil day. You can actually stand. You know, James says that we are to submit ourselves to God, which if you're a born-again believer, you've done that. And then it doesn't say in God will deal with the devil for you. This is the point of the thought that I'm trying to get across to you right now. It doesn't say that if you'll submit to God, God will deal with the devils in your life. The Bible says that if you submit yourself to God, God will actually bestow on you this authority so that you can resist the devil and the devil will run from you as in terror. The problem here is if the devils aren't fleeing, then you're not resisting properly. And if you're not resisting properly, it's because there is an inadequate understanding or revelation knowledge pertaining to what I'm speaking on right now, the believer's authority. And that's why I'm gonna take time to pump this scriptural doctrine in you. You know, Proverbs 24.10 says, if you fail in the day of adversity, if the devil attacks and you failed, Proverbs says this, not me, so don't go off saying this guy's so insensitive. He kind of, you know, he's accusing me. Of, no, I didn't say this. The Bible says this. If you fail in the day of adversity, Proverbs 24.10 says, your strength is too small. Your strength is too small. How do you build your strength? Proverbs 24, same chapter. Proverbs 24 and verse 4 and 5. The Bible says a wise man is strong and a man of knowledge increases strength. So your authority in scope and in potential is unlimited. As unlimited as God's authority. Remember Jesus said all authority and all power in heaven and on earth belongs to me and I, I give this authority to you. That authority is, un, is as unlimited as God's authority. However, the limitations in your operation of it is based upon the level of spiritual understanding that you have about this. And number two, the, uh, your ability, your ability to, 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 to activate it yourself, to release it yourself. So nobody's blessed beyond another, and it's not because one's using this authority that God specially gifted them over. You know, it's because they have a spiritual understanding of that authority, and they've learned how to release it. So they understand what it is, and they've learned how to activate it in their own life. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Bible says that there is a surpassing greatness of God's power that is available towards us. Who believe? So there's a surpassing greatness of God's power that is available towards who? Us, not who are called. Because if it just meant to, to walk in us authority, it, it just meant you have to be called. Then anyone called, many are called, so many would be operating this authority. The reality is it's not many are operating in this level of authority. If it was to us who are saved, then everyone that was saved would automatically begin to operate in this authority 
And there'd be, there'd be no losses, nobody defeated, nobody being bullied by the devil. But the sad reality of the situation is, is that there are many that are saved who have access to this authority, but are being bullied by the devil. Because it doesn't say to usward who are saved, or to usward who are the called, or to usward who are loved by God. If it was just those who were loved by God that had access to this authority and could walk in it, then everybody loved by God would begin to do it. But it says to usward who believe, which means it's not enough just to know about your authority. You have to believe in the authority that's been invested in you via redemption and what does believe mean believe is not i agree oh preacher i, I agree with everything you're saying tj i i really don't doubt anything you're saying i really don't i, I don't doubt a thing I, I know all those i've read those scriptures i know they're in the bible i really i agree with it agreeing is step one in the in faith in the in the journey of faith it's step number one but you got to go beyond just agreeing. Even the demons agree God exists and he is real. And they tremble and they're not operating in this authority. Matter of fact, they're scared of you ever coming into the knowledge of this authority. That's why the devil will fight you more on this doctrine than any other doctrine in all of the Bible. Because look, he'll try and, he'll try and stop you from getting saved, but he can't stop that. So the moment you get saved, he's got a problem. He's got a problem because you have access to this. So what does he do? If he can't stop you from getting saved, he'll at least stop you from coming into the revelation of what I'm speaking on today so that you are ineffective your entire life. You're useless. And instead of demons running from you, you're going to be the Christian. That's always saying, I'm battling demons. I'm running from demons. I, I got the devil on my back this week, brother. Keep me in prayer. That's not the picture the Bible paints of the born-again believer. Matter of fact, it's quite the opposite. You're to be more than a conqueror. Not more than conquered. More than a conqueror. And I always use this, this illustration. A conqueror is someone who goes to war, gets in the battlefield, bleeds and sweats, gets bruised and broken to fight, to gain the victory. You know who's more than a conqueror? When the soldier comes back, and sees his family, who gets to enjoy the peace of the victory that they had over the enemy. They get to enjoy the joy. They get to enjoy the, the parade, the victory parade. They get to enjoy all of that. They get to enjoy the soldier's paycheck because he provides for his home. They get to enjoy it all, although the child and the mother and the wife, whatever, the wife, the daughters, the children, the family never even had to step foot on the battlefield. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. He stepped foot on the battlefield. He went to war against the devil. He defeated Satan and his cohorts. He conquered death, hell, and the grave and made a public humiliation of hell openly. He was bruised. He was hung on that cross, pierced through, stripes on his back. He went to war so that... He can conquer those things for us so that we can become more than conquerors. Enjoy the victory of the cross. Enjoy the triumph of the cross. Now, it's one thing to know that. It's one thing to agree with that. It's quite another thing to actually walk in that. I don't want to just be aware of these things. I want to walk in these things. The Bible is not a fairy tale book for us to leave reality and enter into a fictitious world for a little bit so that we can have some sort of serenity in the midst of a dark and trialsome world. No, the Bible is instructions for the believer on how you can walk as Jesus walked on the earth. Jesus wasn't running from devils. Jesus was not... You know, he saw the gathering demoniac. He said, disciples, get back in the boat. Leave. Let's go. We got to run. He didn't do that. What did he do? He took authority over that thing. Well, that same authority is in your hands. And when I mean believe, I don't mean just mentally agreeing with what I'm saying. I mean, if you actually study the word believe, it literally means to live in accordance with the truth that you hold to. It means to have your life align with what doctrine you subscribe to. It's to live as though it were true. It is to line up your actions, your confession, your thought life, and everything else that pertains to you in alignment with this truth that you claim to hold to. There's too many believers that they talk about the authority of the believer, but the moment they get an attack, the moment the enemy tries to strike or challenge, they, ca they call everybody in their phone book and ask for prayer. They, they, they agree that it's true, but there's no actual firm root of conviction. You know, faith is the conviction 
It's the is a conviction. What is a conviction? Study it for yourself. Conviction literally means a heart rooted heart rooted belief. It is a deep. It's not just some superficial stuff. It is a deep rooted belief. So when I say faith is a conviction, it, it I'm talking about I'm talking about having a deeply rooted belief in these things where this begins to become a part of your inner consciousness where every waking moment of your day you are keenly aware that these things are so. That's what made the difference between John G. Lake and other people in his generation. Why was he healing the sick, raising the dead, slapping tumors off people's bodies? Because he had a deeply rooted conviction of Romans 8 uh, verse 2, that the laws of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the laws of sin and death. He believed himself to be set free from the world's fallen state. He believed himself to be set free from the limitations of the Adamic nature. He saw himself through the lens of scripture and as such, Disease couldn't live in his body. As such, viruses died when they touched his hand. As such, when he put his hand on a woman's tumor on her belly, the next day there was a handprint engraved on her, and the following day it fell off, and new skin was under her. That's what made the difference. So faith is not just having trust. It is proving God that you believe through your action. It is the manifestation of that trust through a practical commitment. Hallelujah. So I know I, I believe in the other. You know, that's where you have a lot of preachers. They say, well, I know that's in the Bible, but how many of you know sometimes we got to use wisdom? They, they literally might as well just say, I know it's in the Bible, but I actually don't believe that because it's not something I've seen. It's the Thomas syndrome. You think the Thomas spirit has ever left? Do you think that unbelieving spirit has ever left? No, it's still alive and well in the church. Unless I put my hand in his in his hands and my arm into the, the side of his body, I will never believe. You think that's left? The church, no. I know it's in the Bible, but I, it's not been my experience. And so don't lower your experience, uh, your, your theology to match your experience. The, the Bible is not at the mercy of your experience. Your experiences are at the mercy of the Bible. So when I talk about faith, in the, it's not just enough. That's why I, I said Ephesians 1, it says that this surpassing greatness of God's power and authority is available to us who believe. I'm not talking about, oh, well, I know about the author. I read a book on that once. I'm talking about to us who believe. Believe as in there is a manifestation of trust through your practical commitment to this truth that you hold to. And so, let's get in, first and foremost, let's get into what does the believer have authority over? Because this is important. What does the believer have authority over? I said it before, you don't have authority over God. You don't have authority over angels. You don't have authority over people, even other people. But what you do have authority is over these five things. And there's probably more, but let's stick with these five for the time being. One, you have authority over Satan. Bible says in Ephesians 2, you are seated with Christ in heavenly places far above powers, principalities, and dominions. So that includes Satan. You're far above. You're not on the same playing field as him. You're not eye to eye with him. The devil's not over you. The devil's not eye to eye with you the devil's not just a little bit you know beneath your eyes he's just he you know he's he can't strike your head and your thoughts but he can go at your body you know he has no place in your bones he has no place in your knees he has no place in your feet the only place the devil has a legal right to remain is under your feet because of your joining together with christ i'm seated in heavenly places far above satan i'm on a different playing field i'm not even in the same realm as him I'm not even, it's like try getting a man, go to space, don't have a spacesuit on, and get out of the spaceship. See how long you'll last in space. That you, you, can't, you cannot inhabit that atmosphere. You'll die very quickly, and a horrible death. You'll freeze to death. It's, your body was not made to live there. And so in the same vein, Satan no longer has the ability 
to enter into the atmosphere where you and I dwell. Just like a fish cannot survive out of water, Satan cannot survive the atmosphere that you and I dwell. We have authority over. The Bible says in Luke chapter 10, actually let me read it. Luke chapter 10 and beginning with verse 19. Actually, let's start verse 17. And the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. That represents demon power. And over all the power of the enemy, Satan himself. And when he says, I give you power to trample, or authority to trample, trample literally means to destroy everywhere you go. To destroy, to trample it under your feet everywhere you go. There's no place I can go that I, sh I, am, uh, that I should be threatened. There are places that I go that the enemy is threatened. It's not the other way around. There's no place, there's every place on which the sole of my foot treads on will be land, Jesus, God said, that will be given to me. So there's no place that I can go to where I am threatened. You got to be careful if you go into that city. You know, there's, there's no place that I can go to that I am threatened. Because greater is he that lives in me than he that is in the world. There's no demon that is matched up. There's no devil that can be matched up with me. There's no devil that can walk the same path as me. We don't coexist. The presence and power of the Holy Spirit in me is greater than any demonic activity there may be. I am not, I'm not afraid of demons. There's too many Christians that are afraid of demons. Thank you, Cheryl, for writing that. A superiority complex that's what I hope this broadcast imparts into you. A superiority complex over the devil. Where it's not you walking around inferior, scared, shy, timid, hoping the devil doesn't notice you. The flip side, it's you walking around with a superiority complex. Because Jesus said, I'm not saying this to get your hopes up. This is the word of Christ. And he didn't say it to get your hopes up. And then went to heaven and he said, hey, angels, let's get some popcorn and watch their tails get whipped because what I said down there was a total lie. Look, resolve this within yourself today. Jesus was either a full-out pathological liar or what he said is true. Don't live in the middle. That's where luke lukewarmness is bred. That's where you get a bunch of loser Christians that don't know they're left from their right. They don't know they're up from their down. And they're constantly... They're constantly being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. They never stand in truth. They never ground themselves. Jesus said, I give you power over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will by any means harm you. Hallelujah. So you have authority over the devil. Number two, you have authority over demons. The, the 70 returned with great joy, saying, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. Subject. Not you subject to them. Them subject to you. Oh, I just feel like I battle a demon of... Why are you battling? Why are you battling something Jesus already gave you victory over? Why are you battling? I don't understand that. And then you've got a lot of preachers that tell people they should battle these things their whole life. I mean, you know, we're all going to battle demons. We're going to battle demons the rest of our life. You know, you should always be checking if there's demons in you. I'm living clean. I'm living holy. I'm not backslidden. I don't have demons in me. And I'm not going to walk around wondering if there's demons. I've got the whole, why are we so demon conscious and not Holy Ghost conscious? Why not become conscious of Christ in you rather than demons in you? Christ in you. You'll find out if you have a consciousness of Christ in you, you won't have to battle demons your entire life. And you know, Jesus said, nevertheless, don't rejoice that demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You know what that says? Jesus was saying, you're not, demons aren't subject to you because you've been traveling with me for the last three years. They're subject to you because your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. If your name's written in the Lamb's book of life, that's the only requirement, the qualification in operating in this God-given authority. 
Well, TJ has this great authority when he preaches. Oh man, I've seen him cast out demons. I've seen him heal the sick. I wish I could have that authority. Quit wishing. Here, wish come true. Bible says you have it. You don't have to wish for it anymore. You got it. Why would I wish for something I already got? You don't even have to, you don't even have to believe to have it. You just got to believe you have it. See, faith oftentimes is preached through the perspective of we're believing for this. We're believing for that. When in actual fact, faith is believing what God already said belongs to you. Number one, Satan. Number two, we have authority over demons. Number three, you have authority over sickness and disease. In my name, you will cast out demons. In my name, you will lay hands on the sick. And the sick will recover. You have authority over sickness. So don't tolerate something you already have authority to take care of. Don't even pray to God. For, you know, the Bible always says, the Bible says we're to pray the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith is not, God, could you please heal us, Lord, if it's your will? That's not the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith, what is faith? I just said it. It's the recognition of what already belongs to you via redemption. So the prayer of faith is just taking authority over sickness because you realize healing belongs to you via redemption. You'll see me pray for healing in many people's, in all my meetings. I don't pray, God, just stretch out your hand to heal. I don't pray that. You know what I pray? You foul, you foul sickness, come off him now. You foul cancer, leave this body now. I, I, I pray very differently from what people have been taught to pray. I take authority over that tumor. I command it to wither now in Jesus' name. That's the prayer of faith. You have that same authority over sickness and disease. Number four, you have authority over fear. For God did not give you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and of a sound mind. So you have authority over fear. Fear is not emotion. You can feel the emotion of fear, but fear at its root is a spirit. Romans 5, uh, Romans 8 and verse 10 or 12 it is. I forget what it is. But it says that you have not received the spirit of fear against the, again to bondage. So there is a spirit of fear, the Old Testament calls it the spirit of heaviness, that seeks to bring people into bondage. The good news is, is that it doesn't belong to you as a believer. And not only that, you have authority over that thing. You don't have to accept fear. You can reject fear. You feel fear coming. You feel anxiety coming. You can stand up in your God-given authority and say, in the name of Jesus, you foul spirit of fear, God, Jesus already said, my peace give I unto thee. I reject this fear. I reject this anxiety. I reject this depression. And I take authority over it. I bind it head to toe. I, 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 I reject it with all that is within me. I refuse to, to entertain it. I refuse to let it stay. I refuse to give it any room in my mind and in my life. You have authority over fear. Every angel that ever appeared to any person in the Bible said, don't fear. Don't fear. Why? Because fear came when they saw the, an angel. They saw the resurrected Christ. And so just that command, don't fear. It like beat off the forces of fear that were trying to come on in, to, to, to enclose them. Because fear will paralyze you. Fear will, will render you ineffective and useless in the things pertaining to God. That's why God said to Joshua, be strong and of good courage, don't be afraid. Why did God say it three times in Joshua 1, don't be afraid, be strong and of good courage? Because it gave now Joshua scriptures where he can, he can now stand on whenever fear tried to, because I'm sure fear tried to come in, but instead he could say, I'm going to be strong, I'm going to be of good courage, I'm not going to give up, I'm not going to quit. He that began a good work in me, he's going to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I am bold. I've got Christ in me. All things will work together for me because I love God and I'm called according to his purpose. The greater one lives in me. God's not given me a spirit of fear. I've got power. I've got a spirit of love. I've got a spirit of a sound mind. I am. I am bold. I'm a believer. I'm not a fear. Uh, uh, I'm not a home of fear. I'm not a, a household of fear. I'm a household of faith. And number five, you have authority over anger. Anger. I'm not talking about you know if someone cut you off on the highway and you got a little angry. I'm talking about a diabolical anger. And I know many people that are watching right now, you've experienced that before. I've experienced that before. 
where I've got so angry, I literally had to, I had to repent because I was, you know, it's normal to be angry, but it says be angry and don't sin. Be angry and do not sin. There have been times where I've crossed that line. And so that's why Jesus said, when you, you know, you've heard that it said, do not murder. But I say to you, he that even is angry with his brother is guilty of, and, and angry of his, with his brother without cause is guilty of murder. Jesus equates anger, an unholy and an uncontrolled anger he's speaking of here. Not because Jesus got angry. He flipped tables over. So it's not about anger itself. It's, it's an uncontrolled, unrighteous anger that does not produce the righteousness of God. That anger, that anger is dangerous. And it opens up, it opens up. If you don't repent of it and, and, and get right with it and you start and you live in that that anger and you let it you let it harbor in your spirit and you don't get rid of it, you don't uproot it, it can open up quite a few things to the devil. That's why Paul said, be angry and do not sin, nor give a foothold to the devil. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give a foothold to the devil. Uncontrolled, unrepented of anger that you don't deal with, it will give a foothold for the devil. But the good news is, is you can have authority over the anger. You can be angry and actually not sin. Why, why can you be angry and not sin? Because you have authority. You have dominion over that, that feeling. You, you don't have to. You know, there's so many Christians that are sensual Christians. What do I mean by sensual? They're emotionally led. They're not led by the Spirit. They're led by their feelings. They're not led by the Spirit. They're led by what they feel. I feel angry. I feel sad. I feel, who cares what you feel? Smith Wigglesworth, one of the secrets of faith that he operated by was I don't, I don't go by what Smith Wigglesworth feels. I don't go by what Smith Wigglesworth hears. I don't go by what Smith Wigglesworth sees. I go by what the word of God says. I don't care about what I feel. Because Lester Summer will ask him, hey, Smith Wigglesworth, how are you feeling today? He said, I don't care how I feel. I go by what the word of God says about me. Because feelings are fickle. They're up and down. But you can actually, and you'll, you'll actually find out if you'll, if you'll, in a moment of anger or in a moment of sadness or whatever, you speak the word of God that deals with that. So if you feel sad, you start to say, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Right words will produce right feelings. So when the anger comes, you can either entertain the anger and flow with the anger and the anger will multiply and then you'll start doing things you shouldn't have done and then you'll have a whole lot of things to repent of or in the midst of anger, someone screwed you over. You can start saying, I'm going to love my brother. I'm going to do good to those that do evil against me. I'm not going to curse them that are my enemies. I'm going to bless my enemies. For what is it if I just curse those who curse me and bless those who bless me? Jesus said, is not the tax collector doing the same? Are not sinners doing the same? No, rather, I'm going to bless my enemy. If you'll start to speak white words, instead of cursing people that did, that did wrong to you, instead you start to bless them and pray for them, you'll start to have right feelings. Depression starts to settle in. You start saying, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Weeping endears for the night. Joy comes in the morning. The kingdom of heaven is not meat and drink, but righteousness, joy, peace, and the Holy Ghost. You'll start to have right feelings. Right words produce right feelings. Right words produce right feelings. Write that out in the comment section. Right words produce right feelings. So you don't have to be a victim of your feelings. You can use your words to change the way you feel. And if you'll stand in what you say and not waver in your confession, you'll start to have your feelings change. And I can even add, I can even add a, a, a sixth thing. That the, author, that the believer has authority over, and that is nature and wild beasts. Jan Alexander Dowie, who was a great man of God back in the day, oftentimes when he was traveling from Australia to the United States to conduct meetings, he would encounter on the ship severe, severe storms. And he had like 100 other people on that same ship. And many people would actually document and testify that the moment the storm storms that even the, the expert salesmen were worried about, Storms that, that put fright in expert salesmen who had navigated the seas their entire life saw John Alexander get up and he would rebuke the winds and the waves like Jesus did and there would be a perfect calm just like Jesus did. Jesus exemplified that. And he said, the works you've seen me you will do and greater works shall you do because I go unto the Father. So that includes that. And then not only that, 
Uh, the Bible promises us dominion over wild beasts. Jesus, while he was in the wilderness, the Bible says he was with the wild beasts and he had dominion over them. That means even lions and all kinds of stuff. There was a, there was a, 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 a Christian, I remember reading this in, Af- in, in the news in Africa, this happened. A Christian that was being chased down by persecutors. They wanted to kill him. He went into the bush of, of the African jungle and encountered lions then. The Christian then took authority over the lion. They didn't eat him. Not only did they not eat him, they stationed, I'm not kidding, this was in the news. I I remember reading this. The lion stationed around him and when the persecutors came to try and attack the Christian, the lions went after, went after the persecutors and chased them out and I think even killed one or two of them. So not only was the believer Uh, not threatened by the lion, the lion was then used as like arsenal against those that were chasing to kill him. That's the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Daniel had dominion over those lions because of the authority of the believer. I'm going to save the rest for Tuesday's broadcast because I have way too much to get into. I didn't even get into the main main meat. So we're going to do like a part two on Tuesday. And I'm going to show you how to release this authority. But I wanted to start this as an introductory broadcast for you. To show you that you have authority. I mean, I read a few scriptures, but there's so many more. Let me read one more and then we'll pray. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And let's start with verse 1. I hope this is helping you. If you just joined me recently, please share this broadcast. This is live. It's August 25th at uh, 2.05 p.m. So please join me. Uh, please, please, please share this broadcast, sorry. Get this word out to as many people as possible. Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. So he said, you once used to be dominated by the things of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Remember, Satan, Jesus said, is the prince of this world. Remember when he was going to the cross, he said, he has nothing in me. He said, the prince of this world cometh, but he has nothing in me. He's often called, oftentimes called the prince of the air, the prince of this world, the prince of the powers of the air. Bible calls him, uh, the Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. The Bible calls him the, the, the adversary. So there's all kinds of names, the, the father of lies. There's all kinds of names that are given to the devil. Here, The Bible says he's the prince of the power of the air. Jesus said the prince of this world has nothing in me. Well, when you got born again, the Bible says you now abide in Christ and Christ abides in me. So just as the devil had nothing in Christ, when Jesus said he has nothing in me, Jesus was saying the devil has no business messing with me. The prince of this world cometh, but he's got no business messing with me. The prince of this world cometh, but he has no ability to dominate me. The prince of this world cometh, but he has no ability to overpower me. Because I am the light of this world, and light shines in darkness, and darkness cannot overpower the light. So when you got joined together with Christ, and you now abide in him, and him abides in you, you can now say, the prince of this world cometh. Yes, the devil's on this earth. Yes, he's come down having great wrath. But he has no ability to overpower me. He has no ability to impede on my business. He has no ability to bypass my defense system. You know, when you go out and buy land, when you go out and buy land, and it's like land that hasn't been built on, has no fence there, they'll go and put these like pink or red um, pickets into the ground all around the land that serve as a boundary. That nobody, so that nobody, everybody understands you can't just go and build on that land. You can't go trespass on that land because it's not land that belongs to you. If you bought land and you didn't put those pickets, somebody can just come on in and do whatever they want and they'd have a legal, so I didn't know that was your land. I just thought it was land. They could, they'd have a legal case to build against you. So the word of God, when you understand the authority of the believer and everything we have authority over, it serves as pickets that you can put around your home, around your children, that serve as like a neon glowing red sign to the devil that you have no ability to pass over here. When you don't understand your authority, then there's no boundaries and the enemy will take everything you can give him. The enemy will take everything you give him. He'll take everything you give him. 
You can have all the authority of the believer in the world, but the devil will take everything you give him because of the words you speak and your spiritual understanding of the word of God is low. If you don't believe you have authority over sickness and disease, the devil will take your health. If you don't believe you have authority over demons and Satan, demons and Satan will bombard you the rest of your life. Because, you know, if you, like, for example, I always hear believers say this. I feel like I have a generational curse. I'm under a generational curse. I need a generational curse broken off my life. And I, 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 I never could understand that because the Bible says you actually carry a generational blessing. The Bible says you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God said you are blessed and nobody can curse whom God has blessed. The Bible says the curse without cause shall not alight. Meaning the curse causeless, the curse that someone sends your way or that was passed down through your family, because you're now redeemed, it has no business being in you and so it's a curse without cause. It is a curse that has no right anymore. No rights on your life. The curse without cause will not alight, meaning it'll never take off. But... If your confession is, I have a generational curse, I feel like I'm cursed, I feel like the devil's on, he will gladly accommodate your poor theology and you will live as though you had a generational curse, not even knowing that you have a generational blessing. So you, you can either, and there's a lot of preachers that preach this, that Christians can have generational curses. I certainly don't believe that. I think that if you keep on talking that you have a generational curse, you will have what you say. But if you understand what the Bible says about you in Christ and your position as a redeemed child of God, how could you have... How, you know, when you get born again, you now are part of a new, a new genealogy. So your generation's not even the same. Your genealogy is not even the same. I'm part of the, the generation of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm part of that genealogy. Was Abraham cursed? No, he was blessed. I don't care what generational curses went through my family. The moment I got adopted into the family of God, I forfeited my rights to my old family. I'm not under the Adamic family anymore. I don't care if my great-great-grandfather played with a voodoo board. I don't care what he did. I didn't do it. He did it. I'm disconnected from that. I'm connected to Christ. And Christ is blessed, and I am blessed. And because I am blessed, I'm going to confess I'm blessed. So you can't keep on going saying, you know, we're, we're, uh, we, we have a generational curse, and then expect to live in a generational blessing. Out of, the, 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 out of the, the, the lips of a man's mouth shall he be ensnared, the Bible says. By a man's words, he will be ensnared. Proverbs 6, 2. A man will be snared by the words of his mouth, and he will be taken by the words of his mouth. Taken, meaning captive. So instead, say the opposite. The course of the power of this... A course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once, so no longer conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, by nature we were, just as the others, children of wrath. Notice how it doesn't say we are, it says we were children of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. So you have to see this, when Jesus rose from the dead, you rose with him. I was made alive. The moment Christ was made alive, I was made alive in Christ when I believed. By grace, you have been saved, raised up. So when Christ was raised up, I was raised up together with him and made us sit together. The moment Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, I sat down with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. So I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places, far above powers, far above dominions, far above every name, every demon, every power of the wicked, heavenly, wicked, uh, wicked powers in heavenly places. I'm, I'm far above it. Far above it. So that's what the authority of the believer is. I want you to join me on Tuesday's broadcast. We're going to talk about how to operate in that authority. And several 
weapons that are at our disposal that enable us to release that authority to get practical victory. So I would tune in Tuesday, 1 p.m. But let me pray for you before we go. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for these precious souls that have joined us, joined me on this broadcast today. I pray that the eyes of their understanding would be flooded with light even now, that they would see this great authority that you've afforded us through redemption in Christ, that you desire for every child of God to walk in, that it belongs to everyone who's been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And even if they feel like they're the pinky toe in the body of Christ, Father, I thank you that even the pinky, the devil's still under the, under the feet of the church. That includes the pinky. Even the pinky has this authority. I pray, Lord, you'd use this broadcast to go throughout the entire earth, the four corners of the earth, to raise up a bold people that'll say enough is enough. That'll first take authority in their own lives. Then use that authority to, t to boot the devil out of their homes. And then you finally use this authority to boot the devil out of their region, their states, their countries, and their continent. In Jesus' name. Jesus' mighty name. Stay connected with us by visiting us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching at TJ Malkanji. Or visit us online, www.salvationnow.ca. God bless you, and until next time.